The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 26 of the Communion of Saints, Paragraph 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head, by his Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Welcome to episode 76 of This We Confess, as we begin our look at chapter 26 of the Communion of Saints. Many years ago, when I passed my driving test, a family friend gave me a St. Christopher medallion, which he wanted me to place in my car. St. Christopher is seen as the patron saint of travellers, and therefore a little medallion in his honour attached to my car would help me safely on my way. It was a kind notion from a generous and lovely lady. However, she and I had very different opinions on who the saints might actually be. In Roman Catholicism, a saint is a dead Christian who has performed a verifiable miracle in his or her life, and then has the title of saint conferred upon them after their death. Not surprisingly, Rome has once again gone wrong, because biblically speaking, the issue of who is or is not a saint is altogether more straightforward. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul would be able to address his letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say something similar as he wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then speaking in Colossians 1 and verse 26, Paul writes about the gospel mystery that has now been revealed and says, It was the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. So biblically speaking, it is clear to see that the saints are not some elite group of long-dead Christians. Instead, the saints are Christians. They are men and women who have received Christ by faith, and have been saved. Indeed, the Westminster Divines, understanding this, spent no time whatsoever in this paragraph on a discussion of who the saints were, 
and they moved straight away to the altogether more important discussion of the saints' union with Christ. When we speak of the communion of saints, we mean that the Christians, the saints, are united to Jesus. They are found in Christ, and he is in them. And the Christian is part of the body, the church. And Jesus is, as the Westminster divines describe him, the head of the body. But how are Christians united to Christ? We're told in this opening paragraph, Our union with Christ comes into existence by the Spirit and by faith. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again so that we may receive Christ. The Lord Jesus taught us in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verses 5 to 8. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry brings us to salvation in Jesus Christ. In John 16 and verse 7 to 11, the Lord Jesus tells us that the Spirit exercises a convicting ministry. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so if we are considered saints, it is because the Holy Spirit has done a work in our lives. It is not by works done by us in righteousness, says Paul in Titus 3, 5 and 6, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us, and as he blows through a sinner's heart, we are caused to be born again spiritually, with new hearts and new wills, and so we are enabled and equipped to freely choose Christ as our Saviour. In other words, we look on to Jesus by faith. We define faith as a receiving and resting in Christ as he is offered in the Gospel, and we know that biblically speaking, without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says exactly that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Saving faith in Christ Jesus is an absolute necessity for salvation. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 to 9 tells us that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even our faith is a gift from God. It is not found in and of ourselves, but requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we know that faith is not a New Testament phenomenon. In Genesis 15 and verse 6, we read that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
Abram was a man of faith. And we see many other Old Testament saints considered men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so it is clear that the saints are regular everyday Christians who by the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit and saving faith in Christ have been redeemed. Therefore they are united to Jesus and they have fellowship with him as the divines say in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection and glory. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favour to those who deserve his wrath and by our union with Christ we have fellowship with Jesus in his graces. In other words we have fellowship with him in his unmerited and undeserved favour. John is therefore able to write in 1 John 1 and verse 3 that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Lord and speaking of Christ's grace John continues in his gospel in John 1 and verse 16 for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Every single day, by extension of our union with Christ, we enjoy God's extraordinary grace to sinners, not least in our very salvation. And Paul reminds us that if we are saints, then it is all of grace. Ephesians 2 and 5-6 says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, today we are saved not by our works, not by our merits, not because we have done miracles in life and therefore will be saved in death, but instead by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we have union and fellowship with Jesus and therefore we enjoy his extraordinary graces, his abundant graces in our lives every day. But there is also an element where we must be prepared to share in his sufferings. Paul would speak in this way in the book of Philippians. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul here isn't suggesting that a Christian must also go through the horrors of what Christ experienced at Calvary. His experience there was once and for all a sacrifice that can never be repeated. And we cannot imagine the weight and the terror of what Christ experienced on our behalf. Yet by our union with him, we can say that we have been crucified with him. We have died with him and we will be raised with him. Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 to 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we will not be going to Calvary, brothers and sisters. Christ's sacrifice is all-glorious and all-sufficient. But by the merit of our union with Christ, we can expect trouble in this life. Christ is hated in this world, and because we are united to Jesus by faith, then we too are hated. Jesus warned us exactly this when he said in John's Gospel, John 16 and verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But with that said, we know that 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 is true. If we endure, we will also reign with Jesus. Just as we have fellowship in the suffering of Christ, both in his finished work and as his body suffers here on earth, so too will the saints enjoy his glory. Life for the Christian is not promised to be all sweetness and light, but we see our suffering through the prism of Christ's faithfulness, and because we are united to him, then we can never fall away. If it is true that we are united to Christ, our head, then it is also true that we are united to one another. As the paragraph continues, the Westminster Divines write that we are united to one another in love, and we have communion in each other's gifts and graces. The confession here puts to bed any notion that the Christian stands alone. In the modern church, independence is seen as a virtue, and we can often act like consumers. We drift in and out of fellowships. We seek all that we can get for ourselves and for our children, but we never put down roots, and we never, ever serve Christ the King in our local fellowship. If this describes modern Christianity, then the scriptures disabuse us of this notion. Our union with Christ is a wonderful and joyous reality, and a practical extension and implementation of that union is how we love one another and serve one another in the local church. There is no room for favourites or cliques in the local church. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 21 to 23, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. We do not play favourites in the local church, and we seek to serve everyone as part of the local church. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, Paul would again write, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so as Christians, as saints, we do not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to be used just on ourselves, but it is for the common good. It is for our brothers and sisters. It is for our fellow saints who are also in this wonderful union with Christ. And so for a glimpse into what our church should be like, we look to Ephesians 4 and verses 15 to 16. Paul says there that we are to speak the truth in love, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, brothers and sisters, our union with Christ is not some obscure piece of doctrine just for the old guys who are interested in that sort of thing. As a believer, you have received the Holy Spirit. He has caused you to be born again. You have trusted Christ by faith. You are in a wonderful union with Christ in his graces and his sufferings and his death, resurrection and glory. And therefore, as a believer, as a saint, you are united with your fellow members of the household of God. Therefore, it is, as Paul says in Colossians 2 and 19, that we hold fast to the head who is Jesus from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So no favourites, no cliques, 
but instead we have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in a multitude of ways for the common good of the church. As the paragraph closes today, it shouldn't go unnoticed that the Westminster Divines stress our obligation to serve, writing that we are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. In simple terms, as men and women of faith, united with Christ and therefore to one another, we are obliged to serve one another. We are obliged to do our duties both in public and in private that will build one another up both inwardly and outwardly. Our service to one another as we live together in fellowship with one another in love is to help us on our Christian walk, not just where everyone sees, but also in the privacy of our hearts. Therefore, we are to bless one another, to strengthen one another, and to help one another. None of this should surprise us. Paul would say to the Romans in Romans 1 and verses 11 to 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wasn't coming as the star of the show to tell all of these minor Christians the things that they needed to believe. Paul wanted to come to encourage and to be encouraged. He was in union with Christ and therefore he had fellowship and a loving relationship with God's people. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul again advises, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Once more, the scriptures speak against our arrogance, and the scriptures speak too against our arrogance when we perhaps write off a fellow Christian and believe that we will never see them again or speak to them again. We are to constantly do good to everyone, and especially the church of Jesus Christ. And while we are waiting for Christ's return, Paul tells us this in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 11 and 14. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak and be patient with them all. Our union with Christ practically flows into our relationships with others. We are to be encouragers in the local church. We are to be present in the local church. We are to serve Christ in the local church. And we are to take our place all the time as Christians, not as splendidly isolated individuals, but instead as valued members of the church of Jesus Christ. We know that we will love Jesus when we love the church. 1 John 3 and verse 16 says exactly that. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So our theology of a union with Christ flows into the practicalities of everyday life in the church. None of us will ever, I suspect, catch the attention of those who have the power to make or break saints. But we should not be concerned. By faith in Christ, we are saints, redeemed, forgiven, and in a glorious mystical union with Christ Jesus our head, 
and with the church, his body. The road ahead may be incredibly long, and at every turn we may face danger on all sides. But we know that the road is sure, and the destination is certain. And because of our Lord and Saviour, who laid down his life for his body, the church, not a single saint will be lost, for they are with Jesus. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Who are the saints? Support your answer biblically. Question 2. How are the saints united to Christ? Question 3. The Westminster Divines mention five areas that the saints have fellowship with Christ. What are they? And question four. According to today's paragraph, why is Christianity not a selfish faith? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. <laughs>